The Energy Gang is brought to you by Vertzilla Energy, leading the transition toward a 100% renewable future. In 2018, Vertzilla established the Path to 100 community to bring together thought leaders and industry experts with a goal, discover solutions, raise awareness, and start a dialogue on how to achieve a 100% decarbonized electric system. Visit pathto100.org and become part of the discussion. We're also brought to you by Honeywell, a leading supplier of IoT solutions to mission-critical industries around the world. Honeywell Smart Energy helps utilities transform grid operations through advanced solutions and targeted services from edge to cloud. Their electricity, gas, and water solutions go beyond tomorrow's horizon, putting valuable, actionable data in the hands of utilities to better serve their customers. Find out more at smartenergy.honeywell.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. This week, in the 1960s, scientists who worked for General Motors and Ford discovered that the exhaust from their product, cars, was likely changing the climate. They made presentations at conferences, they briefed senior executives, and then they were publicly contradicted and their work was suppressed. We're going to talk to the reporter who broke that story. Next, plenty of conservative regions are embracing renewables, but now 100% clean energy mandates are spreading to redder states. The latest is Arizona, a place where elected officials and a giant utility previously worked to stop the march of clean energy. We're going to look at the shift underway there. And last, can a Marshall Plan for fading coal communities rebuild America's former industrial regions? I am here to talk about these stories with my two co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine is the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. She's there in Arlington, Virginia. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm planning my Instacart Thanksgiving. <laughs> so you don't have to shop in person anymore. Are you uh, less stressed about the shopping for such a big family? Well, some of our family is spread far and wide. So one of my kids and his fiance live in Alaska now, and they're going to do their own Thanksgiving there. So I will only have three of my kids here. But I'm more concerned that the Instacart people not are not able to find what I requested in my cart. <laughs> <laughs> Jigger Shah is here. He's the president and co-founder of Generate Capital. He's in Bethesda, Maryland. Hi, Jigger. Hi. It's going to be a, uh, I think it's going to be a cold Thanksgiving. I think we had freezing temperatures last night. This is our last show before Thanksgiving. Do you have any nominations for Thanksgiving turkeys? <laughs> there are many Thanksgiving turkeys. I would say that, you know, our current president is at the top of the list, but there are many other turkeys I'd love to nominate. Do you think he'll pardon more than one turkey? <laughs> oh, my goodness. He has a list of like hundreds of turkeys that he needs to nominate before he leads yeah, office. The, the pardon season is upon us. And we are so happy to welcome Maxine Jocelyn, a reporter with e and &E News. Maxine covers transportation there. And e, e News is the largest collection of journalists in the country focused exclusively on energy, climate, and the environment. And she is here to talk about a really stellar series of stories on what automakers knew about climate change. Maxine, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So... We are going to talk about this months-long investigation that you were involved in. First, we're still feeling the ripple effects of investigations five years ago from the LA Times and Inside Climate News. Those showed that ExxonMobil Corporation staff scientists were well aware decades ago that their product, petroleum, caused global warming. 
The reporting spawned the hashtag ExxonNew, and it resulted in real-world legal cases against the company. And now your reporting is out uh, showing that automakers also knew. So you talked to more than two dozen former GM and Ford employees, retired auto industry executives, academics, environmentalists. And it leaves the reader wondering, what if they'd taken the problem more seriously a half century ago? Before we get to that big question and some of the details, let me ask you bluntly, Maxime, what did your reporting uncover about what GM and Ford knew about climate change and when? Yeah, so the story uncovered the story of two staff scientists at General Motors in Ford. Uh, the first was Ruth Reck. She was a climate scientist at General Motors Research Laboratories in Michigan, and she got there in 1965 after getting a PhD in physical chemistry and Soon after she got there, began researching climate science. And then the second main character in this story is a man named Gilbert Plass, who was this Canadian physicist who got to Ford's aerospace division and also was deeply engaged in climate research as early as the, the 1960s. And what did their research show? So Ruth Reck was focused on pollutants that can come from car tailpipes. So things like aerosols, which are these tiny particles that also come from factories. And then obviously the main greenhouse gas that we're now worried about, carbon dioxide. And her research found that aerosols, while they have a sort of cooling effect on the atmosphere, the warming effect of CO2 is so much more potent that it really cancels it out. Um, and so combined, what's coming out of car tailpipes is generally leading to an increase in temperature of the earth or global warming, as we now call it, or the greenhouse effect, as it was then called. Gilbert Plass was looking generally at the burning of fossil fuels, not specific to car tailpipes, but he also theorized that the burning of fossil fuels was the leading cause of increased temperatures over the last century. Let me just talk a little bit with you about Ruth Reck, this incredible woman. Um, you also wrote a piece about how she was really pushed aside um, within GM. And if you think back on Eunice New Newton Foote, who was the first woman in climate science in 1856, who studied the CO2 effects of temperature on the earth. Um, a couple of years later, a man came out and announced that he had discovered that. So let's look at Ruth. And she was the youngest graduate of Minnesota State at 18 years old, a brilliant young woman. She was brought into the company and was considered a distraction. So they built walls around her. The walls at GM were made of glass. And you found that instead, they put walls that were opaque so that people would not be distracted by her. So tell me, how did a woman at that time in the 60s when she started, and she was there for 27 years until 1992, how did she fare based on the fact that she was a woman? Yeah, it's a great question, Catherine. And the second story that I wrote was really about the the sexism and sort of misogynistic environment that Ruth Reck faced at GM Research Labs. So she was, I believe, the first woman to join GM Research Labs who had a PhD. And uh, there's this anecdote in the story where this male vice president at GM takes all the 
women of the company out to lunch and the rest are all secretaries and she's the only one with a PhD. And then going back to what you were saying, Catherine, she was told that she was a distraction to her male colleagues because she was, quote, a, a shapely woman. So they were they were ogling her physical appearance rather than paying attention to the really groundbreaking research that she was doing on climate. So how did that influence how her research was received within GM? As your reporting showed, she did find uh, some allies who were interested in her research, but ultimately what happened and did the sexism play any role in how that research uh, made its way around the company? Yeah, so the the second story really tried to grapple with that question. Um, and we do know, because Ruth Reck told me in a series of phone interviews, that she presented her findings on climate change to three GM executives, one of whom was this man named Jimmy Johnston, who was a vice president for government relations at GM and, and later was their top lobbyist in DC for many years. And they actually developed a pretty unusual friendship. He he respected her and her work, and he had this strange fascination with clouds, and so was really interested in the fact that she was studying clouds and their how they interacted with climate models. Um, but it turns out that Johnston later was the person at GM who was responsible for having the company join the Global Climate Coalition, this group that lobbied to oppose the Kyoto Protocol and oppose actions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So clearly her work did not have a significant influence or really any influence you could say over the direction of of the company in the lobbying space. And I think it's unclear how much sexism played a role. And I was pretty careful in the story to say, you know, we don't know. I was not able to interview Johnston. He unfortunately passed away before I began my reporting. But um, it is certainly an interesting question to consider, you know, hypothetically, if a if a male scientist had presented those same findings, would they have been taken more seriously? Yeah. One of the things that I find confusing about these types of stories, and I think it's fascinating reporting, so thank you very much for doing it, I is really just, you know, what the causation really was. Because I, I wonder, one of the things that I say a lot is that I think the companies often work independently of the individuals who work there, right? That that ultimately, like, the tobacco companies wanted to sell cigarettes, right? Each individual person who worked there, like, may or may not have thought that the the cigarettes caused cancer, but they still wanted to sell more cigarettes and get their bonuses. And the automakers have always wanted to sell more cars, right? So they had researchers that said seatbelts were pretty good, but they didn't do seatbelts on their own. They had to wait for the Department of Transportation to force them to do it, right? Or they've been, you know, they fought leaded gasoline, right? Even though there was tons of data internally that showed that leaded gasoline was bad. And so, and you even had, you know, prominent male scientists like James Hansen that, you know, talked in front of Congress about how real this was before the Global Climate Coalition came together, right? So so I don't know that it was that they didn't understand it as much as it was not in their best interest financially to understand it. And I'm just trying to figure out how you maybe put some of those disparate thoughts together. Yeah, Jigger, that's a great question. And I think what I would say is that there is this clear delineation or separation within 
automakers between the research or R&D staff, which is very much focused on their research and the executives and the people who are lobbying and talking to government. But we do know that Ruth Reck talked to at least three um, people who were top executives, including two former chairman and CEO and the former vice president for government relations. So we do know that there was some some interaction between those two sides of the company. But I think to your broader point, Jigger, you're right that in this capitalist society that we live in, it was not financially in GM or Ford's best interest to say, oh, we're going to stop making gas powered cars because this woman is telling us that or this man is telling us that they're uh, causing climate change and destroying the planet. Like we still need to to make a profit. Um, and so, yes, I do think that capitalism provides a strong um, counterpoint to, um, <laughs> to, to completely just upending their business model because of what they were hearing from their scientists. There's a great quote um, from the 1938 movie Holiday, where Cary Grant, who is pushing back on capitalism, says, when I find myself in a position like this, I usually ask myself, what would General Motors do? And then I do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. I, I love that. I mean, the other the other thing that was going on at the same time that I'd love to explore is that, remember, the state of California had mandated um, electric vehicles, right? Um, and New York and Massachusetts, through the EPA waiver, had sort of, you know, gone along with it, right? And said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll jump on board. And because you didn't have a Tesla-like uh, competitor, um, and the, the public generally didn't accept the offerings, right? The EV1 was fine, but not, you know, something that people loved. It was very similar to the Honda Insight that, you know, came out sort of in 2005, 2006, which was this tiny car that could hypermile at like 80 miles a gallon or something. And I'm curious, like, part of this to me, like, feels like they just weren't seeing consumer uh, demand for the conversion. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how you put this into context with what we have today, which is, you know, maybe uh, more demand, you have Tesla in there, you may even have, you know, maybe it's Sunrise Movement and a lot of folks who are just passionate about these things. Like, it, was there, was, was it maybe a lack of that sort of outside pressure that, you know, allowed them to do that too? Before you answer that, I want to get the timeline straightened out because you fast forwarded a little bit jigger. So some of the early research that we were talking about was from the mid 60s into the 70s. Um, and then later, in the 90s, this is when the automakers came out, joined the Global Climate Coalition, started uh, publicly disputing the existence of climate change. Um, and then that gets us into California's regulations and the development of early EVs. Uh, so go ahead, Maxine. Sure. Yeah. So um, I think, Jigger, I would maybe politely push back on the premise of the question just a little bit. And I think what we often hear from automakers today is that the cafe standards and other regulations have to account for consumer preference and consumers don't want to buy EVs. And I think when you hear that claim, you also have to think, well, what are they actually doing to sell these EVs? And the Sierra Club and other groups have found that dealerships and automakers aren't really spending a lot on advertising or consumer education or outreach to help sell these cars. And so 
I would push back on the premise maybe just a little bit that consumers didn't want to buy the EV1 when GM introduced it in 1996. I think if you look back at how GM was making efforts or not to to sell the car, they weren't really weren't really making a lot of efforts to sell the car. They only made like a thousand or so models and then they discontinued it shortly thereafter. So there's this really priceless line in your reporting where a GM research fellow says, well, if if this doesn't work, we can always make electric cars. And uh, I'll quote the line. Uh, if fossil fuels were to become unacceptable, the alternatives under consideration for automotive propulsion would cause economic dislocations, he wrote. As research on these alternatives proceeds, therefore it seems prudent to avoid singling out one of them prematurely for massive action. What did you take from that early assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think the the GM research fellow was absolutely right. GM could have responded to Ruth Rex's findings by making a, a pretty big pivot away from gas-powered cars and toward electric vehicles. But obviously that, uh, he put it more delicately, but obviously that pivot would have hurt them financially. Yeah, so in 1988, when James Hansen testified before Congress, it became quite clear that all of this research that these scientists at automakers and elsewhere had done was true, and that CO2 was impacting the climate of the earth. And what happened was in 1989, the Global Climate Coalition came into being that lasted over a decade. And this group didn't just ignore climate science, they actually campaigned to change the narrative, sow doubt and stop progress. And this included everybody. It was the big three automakers, but it was also the National Association of Manufacturing, the American Petroleum Institute, Edison Electric Institute, All of these organizations that sought to benefit from development and use of fossil fuels came together to stop any action to prevent it. Yeah, no, that's right. And and if you remember correctly, like there was um, there was the first Gulf War that happened right around that time, and uh, candidate Bill Clinton at the time had said that oil prices were spiking to thirty six dollars a barrel, and we needed to strengthen cafe standards, right? And so this is a point where. We, we chose not to raise CAFE standards, right? We didn't make the fuel economy standards tougher uh, when he came into office. In fact, we basically just threw a ton of money into research. It was called the, the Partnership for a New Generation of Vehicles or something like that. And so we really, not only did we not pursue alternatives to burning fossil fuels like uh, electric vehicles, we also didn't take the opportunity to mandate high performance, you know, high efficiency uh, fossil fuels. We instead said, let's throw more money at research instead of doing anything about it. So what happens then with the Global Climate Coalition? Like how do GM and Ford get involved? And what is the messaging that we're hearing at this time? Yeah, so the the Global Climate Coalition, as as Catherine said, sort of had had everybody, all the big players who were in industries that were dependent in some way on fossil fuels. So you had the automakers, utilities groups, manufacturers, um, American Petroleum Institute, and their first main goal was when President H. W. Bush was 
attending a climate summit, the, the 1992 Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, they wanted to prevent him from setting specific emissions reduction goals. And they kind of felt that they were successful. I don't know how much, how much sway they had, but he ended up not, not setting those goals. And then their next target was, um, when, when Clinton took office to prevent him from having the U.S. ratify the Kyoto Protocol. And they put out a lot of ads, both on, on TV and in major newspapers like the Washington Post and the New York Times saying this deal was was bad for America. And if developing countries are exempt, why should the U.S. have to make sacrifices? And we've heard those arguments for decades. I mean, those arguments really stuck. Oh, yeah. Well, they stuck to the point where, you know, the Senate actually proactively voted against entering Kyoto 99 to zero, I think. Um you know, even before Bill Clinton even submitted the Kyoto <laughs> Protocol to the Senate, right? So, and I think you still hear that today from Republicans who oppose rejoining Paris. And a lot of this has been supported by money given to Competitive Enterprise Institute, American Enterprise Institute, Heritage Foundation, Cato, all these right-wing groups that have stood up these reports that provide the foundation and the rationale for not having any action. Let's talk about the implications of this story and what your reporting actually means. After a lot of that reporting many years ago about Exxon came out, I think we've now become accustomed to the idea that a lot of these big corporates knew about climate change um, well before the public really understood the issue. Um, But still, a lot of your reporting brought out new details. And I'm curious about how you got into this story and what you think these new details that you found say about how these corporates have treated this issue and their role in our collective understanding of climate change. Yeah, so I I firmly believe that journalists stand on each other's shoulders and and build on each other's work and I don't I don't think I would have had the idea to even look into this if the LA Times and Inside Climate News hadn't had that really fantastic reporting in 2015 on what Exxon knew in the 70s about climate change and so I was very much wanting to follow in the footsteps of that reporting and and see what what automakers knew and that led me to uh the rest of the reporting sort of flowed from from that. In terms of the second part of your question, Stephen, I think in terms of like the policy arena and the public pressure, I could see this reporting having implications for what President-elect Joe Biden might do to tackle climate change. And he's obviously interested in um, reducing emissions and getting us to net zero by 2050. And to do that, he's going to have to do something about transportation, which is the biggest source of carbon emissions in the country right now. It's 28%. And he's probably going to set tougher cafe standards. And I think there may be some pressure from environmental groups for Ford and GM, but really all automakers to to lend their public support to whatever the, the Biden EPA and Department of Transportation propose for those standards. Catherine, what do you think? Does this step up the pressure in any way? 
first of all, it's amazing reporting. And I was so interested in reading it and thinking about all of the polluting industries that have been paid to pollute. Um, and thinking that this really does have to change, but they are changing. And I'm really interested to see because of the global economy and the global demand for EVs and electrification, how they're positioning themselves now and how many there's supposed to be 300 models of electric vehicles coming out in the next couple of years. Um, you know, once they get the F-150 fully electric, which is uh, for 40 years, the best selling vehicle in America, um, that will really change the game. And I think you're going to find them. And this is, again, based on capitalism, um, trying to, you know, change how they're making money. And let's hope uh, that this reporting has some impact on that, too. Thanks, Catherine. Yeah, I would just say to that that I think a big difference between this reporting about Ford and GM and the earlier reporting about Exxon is that unlike Exxon, which is sort of doubling down on on oil and gas, to their credit, I would say Ford and GM are really going big on electric vehicles now. And GM has their Altium battery system. They're planning 20 new EVs by 2023. And Ford is electrifying the F-150, which for for 40 years, has been the best-selling pickup truck in the country. Jager, how do you understand this reporting? Like, how do you interpret it, its role in the current zeitgeist, and what do you take away from it? Yeah, like Catherine, um, you know, I, look, I think the reporting is extraordinary. And and frankly, you know, just kudos to you and, and frankly, your your entire organization for letting you spend so much time on it. I, I think it's really enlightening to all of us. I The part that I continue to struggle with is just whose responsibility um, and where the responsibility lies within a democracy. I, I mean, I think when you think about what led to EPA being formed in the 1970, it was 20% of all Americans actually turning out for the first Earth Day, right? And when you think about what has led to it, this current moment, it's, you know, AOC and a bunch of Sunrise kids actually taking over Nancy Pelosi's office when it was super risky for all of them to do it, right? And I think I, part of what I'm concerned about is I think that we put way too much emphasis on corporations and CEOs at corporations doing the right thing. I have no belief whatsoever that they will ever do the right thing. Like sometimes they will because, you know, they get pressured into doing it by their own employees. Some, But, you know, it, it, but a lot of times they don't, right? And it's, it's just one of those things where I, I feel like part of what I take away from the story is that we all failed to put the level of pressure on politicians to hold GM accountable during these years um, when we could have actually held them accountable as opposed to, GM should have held itself accountable because I I just don't think that's how capitalism works. I don't think these corporations hold themselves accountable to anything but paying themselves more every year. I disagree with that entirely. I mean, our show over the years has been all about the shift within corporate culture, which has often influenced the way that policymakers think about these issues. And so because you see more public companies grappling with the broader set of ESG issues, a lot of that has come from the pressure of activists. It's come from this idea of um, sort of being a social pariah and wanting to meet what your customers want. And right, but you're making my point for me, right? That's that's what I'm saying. It comes from losing their social license and activists telling them that they will tarnish their brand forever unless they actually join the majority. I don't think it comes from enlightened 
you know, self-awareness where they listen to some researcher within their own organization and they say, you know what, we need to be leaders on this issue. Like, I think it comes from, um, you know, all these extraordinary people that we've interacted with over the last 10, 15 years who have said, look, we are going to try this. And it may not work because it certainly didn't work in the 80s and 90s. There, there were people trying to tarnish these folks' brand back then, and it didn't work. It has worked in the last 15 years. Um, but I think it's the fact that like Greenpeace stood up to Google, Apple, Facebook, and others over the years and said, look, you need to stop putting conflict materials in you know your computers. You need to stop like powering your data centers with coal, right? That That is what I think caused the change, not these folks reading research from their own internal employees and saying, we're going to do the right thing. Yeah, but it depends on how they benefit. Do they benefit from the status quo or do they benefit from a transition to electrification? So, you know, I would argue that capitalism would force them now to begin to change. But back when Ruth Rex started in 1965 and, you know, through those decades that she found this research, that's not where they would benefit. So let's bring this back into your reporting, Maxine. As you pointed out, um, these automakers really have accelerated their investments in more efficient vehicles in electrification, which is very different from a company like ExxonMobil, which really hasn't bowed to much public pressure. So we have seen a pretty significant acceleration in this space, but the acceleration has come decades after the company recognized that there was a potential problem. So as you explored this story, did you ask this question or grapple with this question about what might have been had this transition started so much earlier? Yeah, absolutely. I think in the second story, so the first story was just about what these companies knew and when. And then the second story was about Ruth Reck and the sexism she faced at GM. And I think the second story really attempted to grapple with what could have been, right? And so there was this great quote um, from a woman named Catherine Wilkinson, who works at Project Drawdown, was just the the main editor of this book called All We Can Save about um, that's a just compilation of essays and poems by um, by all women about climate change. And she she said, quote, um, this would be frustrating in any field, but it is especially enraging and heartbreaking when it is a field that has such a critical role to play in a livable future. Um, the what ifs are gutting. Um, what it, what might Ruth Reck have been able to influence? And the truth is, we don't know. It is gutting. Um, that's a great place to end it. But the reporting is fantastic. We highly recommend going to check it out. We will link to those stories in our show notes. And we are so thankful that you came on to join us, Maxine. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, and thank you so much for, for the kind words about the reporting and for, for highlighting it. I appreciate it. It really was great stuff. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it was really amazing and inspiring. Thank you so much, Maxine. Maxine Joslow is a reporter with e News. A brief pause here to talk about our sponsors. We are brought to you by Vertzilla Energy. 
The Path to 100% is a group of thought leaders and industry experts working together to identify the fastest and most cost-effective ways to decarbonize electricity, not just city by city, but across entire states and nations. This is about more than just raising awareness. It's about solutions and realistic approaches to building a 100% renewable electricity future. That means addressing economic, scientific, political challenges that vary around the world. So the Path to 100% is not a one-size-fits-all blueprint. The Path to 100% is made possible by Vertzilla, a global leader in smart technologies and complete life cycle solutions for energy markets. To learn more and download the Pathway to 100%, visit pathto100.org. We're also brought to you by Honeywell. The next generation of smart electric grid technology is here. Honeywell has partnered with leading cell carriers to integrate 5G and LTE network technologies into its connected energy solutions for smarter homes, buildings, cities, and mission-critical industries. Honeywell is using cellular IoT infrastructure to help utilities develop high-speed, reliable, and secure networks. Its scalable and customizable platform makes it easy for utilities to build grid intelligence, improve customer experience, and find new opportunities for efficiency and automation. Learn more at smartenergy.honeywell.com. The Arizona body that regulates utilities, called the Arizona Corporation Commission, has voted for big change, what Green Tech Media called a systematic commitment to clean energy. Back in late January, we brought you an episode about a different turnaround at Arizona's biggest utility, Arizona Public Service. The stuff that APS was involved in before its repentance is epic. We've covered that over the years. You should check out that episode for a recap. We'll probably cover a bit here. But now it's the whole state of Arizona, phasing out fossil fuels from its grid entirely by 2050. For anyone who watched Arizona Public Service's political war on solar in the 2010s and its help from commissioners, this is another astonishing piece of news. But it doesn't break cleanly along partisan lines. Arizona already had clean energy requirements. One major one early on was passed by a completely Republican corporation commission. So how big a deal is this? What are the politics at play? How much of a departure is this in a state like Arizona, where the politics of clean energy have been up and down and up and down. Catherine, first to the target. What's in it? Yeah. So according to Ellen Zuckerman, who is the co-director of utility programs with the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project, and they were crucial to managing a coalition of dozens of groups that supported this. She said, Arizona is the first state in the country to enact a carbon-free electricity standard where the initiative was Republican-led. So what the initiative includes is it's 100% carbon-free by 2050, and it requires Arizona Public Service and Tucson Electric Power, both of the major utilities, to be 100% carbon-free by 2050 and reduce their carbon emissions by 50% by 2032 and 75% by 2040. Remember, this is it was originally only 15% by 2025. So this is significant. There's an energy efficiency standard that would require those utilities to cut energy waste over the next decade and provide customers with more rebates and services to replace old air conditionings, inefficient water heaters, etc. There's an energy storage standard, which was huge because it it carves out 40% for customer-owned and leased systems. So those would be ones that Sunrun and other companies are selling out there for customer-sided systems. And then also 
this is also crucial is they they put in into place improvements in the integrated resource planning process to support greater transparency and stakeholder engagement as utilities develop 15-year plans that is really really important i'm finding that now when i when i go state by state that's a helpful recap so in broad brush strokes it does not mandate renewables specifically it allows for this broad suite of clean energy technologies which really just means nuclear, essentially, and and energy efficiency. Um, There's a requirement for behind-the-meter storage as well, which is notable. Um, Jigger, can you unpack some specifics here? What stands out to you as good? Um, What do you like about this? What are you uncertain about? Help us understand how you read the details. Well, I think when you think about the way that Arizona uh, works today, right, the details... The details matter, but they're actually less important than um, the signal that it sends, right? Remember, Arizona Public Service has always been a handshake state, right? There's no, like, real rules and regulations. They decide whenever they want to to, like, make it hard to connect your electric system to your roof, right? I mean, they were vicious on stage at Green Tech Media uh, events about, you know, being anti distributed generation for a long time, right? And how net metering was stealing from ratepayers, et cetera. So, you know, if you think about the history of this, you know, part of how we got here was that First Solar um, had a handshake deal with Tucson Electric Power, and we built initial solar projects back in 2001, 2002 in Springerville and got folks comfortable with the technology. But I, but I, I don't know that this changes. I mean, remember that the... Arizona Corporation Commission um, has elected folks, right? Many of whom are, um, you know, uh, receiving campaign contributions um, from the from Arizona Public Service in the past. Um, I think they decided to stay out of it this time around. But with the new elections, this was a two step process. So the hundred percent clean energy rule was passed in sort of an initial reading this first time around, but it doesn't get finalized until after the new ACC gets seated. Um, in January. So we actually don't know what the final rules are going to be. And in fact, the whole thing could get, you know, completely scrapped and changed over before, you know, before the final rule goes into place. So on process, Jigger is right. After the commission has adopted these rules, the Secretary of State has 30 days to publish the final rules in a registrar. And then there's a 30-day public comment period that's overseen by an administrative judge. And after those steps are completed, then the rules go back to the new ACC for a final vote. Now, the vote solar folks, and I spoke to um, Marta Tomic and Ronnie Sandoval, thinks they think they have the votes, even with the new commissioners. They feel pretty confident about that, but there's certainly some work to be done. And part of the way that they were trying to marshal those votes was to not mandate a certain amount of renewable energy, and it was to to use the language clean energy so that it brought in nuclear, for example. So that is, I think, both an acceptable outcome. I mean, it's something that a lot of folks generally are arguing for in states across the country, and it also appears to be what could get this over the finish line in Arizona. Yeah, it's not just... It's it's not just that um, it's it's something we're fighting for, but it's actually something that we recommend mm-hmm. um, for those of us you know who've been pushing for this. Like none of us want it to be a hundred percent renewable energy standard because it literally doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, for them to have one of the largest nuclear power plants in the country, and for that plant not to run and provide clean energy for its entire useful life, just makes no sense. 
And what about any other clean energy technologies that would qualify? Um, is there anything else that's on the horizon that like a generate capital would help finance and deploy? Or is it basically just nuclear that we're talking about? I think it's mostly nuclear. I mean, there is some geothermal potential in Arizona. But I think, remember, the politics of this is a little bit different, right? The politics of this is that Arizona and New Mexico, for that matter, right, they export power into California, right? That is the purpose of their electric utility sector, if I were to be so bold. And the shocking thing about it is that they that, that has not caused them to move faster. Remember, this is not also a Republican-Democrat thing, right? Part of this is the Navajo coal generation station. And so a lot of the Native American voices also were against this 100% renewable energy standard in the past because they wanted to preserve the coal generating station. You know, our friends... Um, have, you know, since the Navajo coal power generating station has been shut down, S-Power has announced that they're going to build 200 megawatts of solar um, on Navajo land and use a lot of the workers that, you know, lost their jobs within the Navajo coal uh, generating station. But I think that a lot of this is really about figuring out just the tribal uh, nature of Arizona, right? I mean, Arizona Public Service was against clean energy, even when it was in its own best interest, even when California was saying, we will overpay you to produce solar power and export it into our state, Arizona Public Service was still against it, right? So I think that, so I think it's important to note what happened here, right? And I think the new CEO was part of the internal group at Arizona Public Service that basically had to contend with the FBI investigations around how they were using dark money to influence the ACC. This is part of them cleaning house and then turning over a new page. And I think without that, that entire dynamic, this would have never happened. And Arizonans wanted 100% clean energy standards, 65% of them. Almost 80% say do it regardless of the pandemic. So they don't think that voluntary measures such as the APS commitment to 100% clean energy were sufficient and thought that the state needed to have a standard. 65% of them across party lines. And in fact, more Republicans were polled because of the nature of the state than Democrats. The, so clearly there was a need in the state and a desire by the voters of the state whether they're Republican or Democrat, to go with clean energy. Going back to your point, Jigger, about the politics of this, APS CEO Jeff Goldner came in earlier this year. He promised to change the way APS lobbies on cases around clean energy, to change the way it spends money on the Corporation Commission races, to embrace more clean alternatives and to transform the grid. And then it, it implemented this really ambitious clean energy target that was a long time coming. Uh, former CEO Don Brandt, I think, was a real, real adversarial figure. And as a result, although the Corporation Commission passed policies early on that were really favorable for renewable energy and the energy transition, we get into the 2010s and basically APS's spending has a lot to do with the politics of resistance to the transition in the state. So now we have this moment where APS has really reformed the way it engages on these issues. Does it free up the commission 
to pass ambitious policy like this? I mean, what is the connection between with the, the way a large utility like APS behaves and the way a commission acts on targets like these? I think you have to think about the mindset of the commission and the mindset of politicians in Arizona, right? Arizona is a really weird place, right? It only exists because of water policy in the West. One of the largest users of water that basically take it out of com- consumption for the population, we don't lose the water, we just you know lose it to evaporation, is the power sector, right? One of the real reasons to make this transition is to get a handle on how we use water in Arizona. Remember, Arizona was a tough place to live 10 years ago. With climate change, it's going to be a lot tougher to live there, right? Without air conditioning, Arizona doesn't exist. And so when you think about how Arizonans actually depend on electricity, remember there was a story, was it last year or the year before, where Arizona Public Service had cut off a woman's power and she died of heat exhaustion. And it was a huge national story and a bunch of uh, justice folks came in and said, what are you doing? Like, why'd you do this, et cetera? Like, I just think that the politics of Arizona um, is weird. The other part of Arizona is because they have so many people who are retirees that move to Arizona, they are very concerned about keeping costs low, right? They are not a place where they're like, oh, yeah, it's only an extra dollar a month on your electricity bill to bring about this change. There's a lot of people who don't want to pay an extra dollar a month, right? So I think that I think we need to think through the politics of this, but I agree with Catherine that, like, that there's a lot of people who support this change, but I would say that the that having a common sense conversation about how Arizona structures its policy to be uniquely Arizonan and uniquely benefiting the people of Arizona has frankly not been possible until January of this year when the new CEO came in. Before then, we were like arguing whether climate change was real. Right, we weren't actually arguing about how do we best take this windfall, and this will be a windfall. To be clear, Arizona has one of the best solar radiation profiles of anyone in the United States, and one of the best worker regimes in the United States from the perspective of being able to uh, install solar at the cheapest possible price. You can install solar today for less than a dollar a watt in Arizona. You can beat the pants off of production costs in California, right? And so at the time at which they decide to go all in on this, this will be a huge economic boom for Arizona. And they weren't able to talk about that in any real way until January of this year. Yeah, since 2006, it was found that APS and TEP customer benefited by $2 billion. So what are you watching for next, Catherine? Yeah, so a couple things. One is, of course, finalizing this and starting implementation. So that's going to be really, really important that all of those groups, that big coalition that worked on this continues to put pressure to make sure that they get this over the finish line and implement it correctly. But looking at the active rate cases now, um, Arizona Public Service has proposed a program of $127 million over 10 years to the Navajo Nation for a just energy transition uh, for impacted communities from these plant closures. There are some performance transition incentives that are being discussed. So there is a lot going on out there. And I think this will really kickstart it. And as Jigger says, you watch APS and you watch the rate cases that they're that they're in the middle of, and it's really changing. The one last thing I'd want to say on this is that 
it is critical for us all to understand that there are people in the Navajo Nation and the Hopi tribes that are not connected to the grid, even today, right? And it is shocking to me that the utilities of Arizona have not taken full responsibility for figuring this out. I get the fact that the Navajo Nation has their own utility, but we've got to figure that out. There shouldn't be people in America today who are not really connected to the grid while we're talking about Electrify Everything. Totally. I have to use the the opportunity to log roll for a moment. We have two episodes of A Matter of Degrees coming up. That's the narrative climate podcast that I'm working on with Leah Stokes and Catherine Wilkinson. One is about the situation, the historical regulatory capture in Arizona, and it features people like Chris Mays, a former uh, corporation commissioner. She's uh, awesome. She was so amazing. She still is um, so amazing. And she has a great story to tell about the history of how this all played out in Arizona. And we talked to people like Ryan Randazzo, a reporter who has, you know, really followed APS for many, many years through this transition. Um, and then we're all, speaking of the Navajo. Last night we recorded an episode with Julian Brave Noisecat about uh, efforts to bring more solar to the Navajo Nation and the historical fights that they've had with Peabody Coal, where Peabody has come in and taken all their coal and given them nothing. And these, this is still a nation that is afflicted by energy poverty in a way that would shock most people. So we have two uh, related episodes coming up that are kind of documentary style. Um, Anyway, it's a fascinating story there in Arizona, and uh, it feels good to have a piece of historic news that doesn't involve like COVID economic collapse. I feel like we're back to the groove in the beginning of the year when we had these like major stories every week that (laughs) felt like we were marching (laughs) towards something. Well, like actually, it's like every day now that we're having major stories. I actually can't keep up. So let's go on to our third topic. George C. Marshall was a decorated military leader through World War II, an Army Chief of Staff, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State. He won the Nobel Prize for the Marshall Plan, a blueprint for rebuilding a battered Europe after the Second World War, creating the foundation for our modern democratic alliances. And he was born in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh. His name is also tied to a new blueprint, the Marshall Plan for Middle America. It's a nonpartisan plan to transition former industrial towns to a new, clean economy. And the mayor of Pittsburgh has now signed on to this Marshall Plan for Middle America as the Ohio River Valley region faces the ongoing bleed of coal job losses. A press release from the city says another 100,000 jobs will be lost in the coming years as the fossil fuel industry continues to decline. Let's remember that from 1970 through 1990, we saw 100,000 job losses in the steel industry. We can talk a little bit about how that region has transformed, but clearly we need to see another transformation for many of these former industrial towns that rely on a lot of coal jobs. So Pittsburgh's mayor has come out in front saying he doesn't want to see this happen again. Eight other cities have now signed on to the plan. What is this version of the Marshall Plan and does it stand a chance? And does having this local advocacy help us wrap our arms around some kind of blueprint to help these struggling communities. Uh, Catherine, what is this version of the Marshall Plan? Yeah, so this roadmap describes itself as nonpartisan data-driven research document that was led by the University of Pittsburgh, University of Massachusetts Amherst, the City of Pittsburgh, Steel Valley Authority, and Heartland Capital Strategies Network, and partly funded by Enel Foundation. And what they've done is they've put together a vision for how 
to see a future uh, that's equitable and sustainable economically for middle American communities. And it's across four states in the Ohio Valley and upper Appalachian region, Kentucky, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. And it's really meant to be a starting point for the conversation that we need to have about how do we move, move those communities forward. They look at, you know, what what has happened in the past? How has it not been diversified enough? How do you make sure that whatever you move to in the future is much more sustainable and diverse so that you're not hooking yourself to, you know, one particular industry, but but you're actually able to do things that are spread across different types of industries? And how do we get companies to invest in market development? How do we get capital to finance development? And how do we have communities really very actively engaged? So they see themselves as providing a good start to the way we're thinking about that part of the country. Well, I wanted to talk about this story because we will soon have an administration, a federal administration, that is going to take this seriously. And we'll probably be looking for plans like this to act on. And so this plan calls for a lot of federal funding for local assistance. And we wouldn't take this seriously under a Trump administration because that funding wouldn't be allocated. But a Biden administration is a different story. So, Jager, how do we make sure that something like this doesn't just become another well-named plan sitting on a shelf and we can put it into action? You know, I honestly don't know because I read all of these articles about the Marshall Plan and I frankly was confused. (laughs) Um, I'll give you an example. So they talk about $15 billion in federal support for local communities. That basically translates to 300,000 workers getting $50,000 of retraining budget. Guess how much we spent on doing that in the Midwest? $15 billion, right? And so we've already spent this money in the Midwest and gotten nothing for it, right? Separately, when you think about the Rewiring America plan, Right, the Rewiring American Plan basically says exactly what this plan says, which is like an extra four hundred thousand jobs per year of direct and indirect, um, adding every year. Right, this is that twenty-five million jobs that Rewiring America talks about. We need to to rewire America, and so the the clean energy sector is already pledging to invest $100 billion into the region. When you look at how many megawatts of solar and wind and battery storage are in the queue in PJM, like we've already designed those projects. They're sitting in the queue. Someone has spent money on the interconnection study to be, to be able to integrate that into the region, right? And separately, when you look at the AWEA and SIA manufacturing maps, we actually already look to Ohio and Indiana and other places to make a lot of the wind turbine, you know, towers, et cetera, right? And so I think we're already on track to doing it. And what I'm trying to figure out is whether this plan means that the mayors and the states are actually going to do their part to enable these changes to occur. I'll give you one example. So I'm working with a city in Ohio. They have a legacy municipal utility. That legacy municipal utility already is, you know, a utility, not a CCA, not a buying co-op or whatever. They actually own the wires in their town of 10,000 people. They they buy power at $77 a megawatt hour from the, you know, PJM grid with all the services. We can actually take them 100% renewable for $65 a megawatt hour today. There's already USDA loan guarantees available 
to provide this town with money at three and a half percent interest. So that that covers that $15 billion they talked about of low interest loans that they wanted out of the Marshall Plan, right? So that money already exists. The problem is the mayor of the town is like, I don't know, do I actually have the support of the region to do this? Like, is this actually something that we're all marching towards the same goal on doing this? Or am I doing this on my own, right? Are there the other 27 towns that are part of this, you know, collective that I'm a part of, are they also going to do this as well, right? And so part of, I think, I'm what I'm hoping this does is not just provide this document, which I thought was awesome, but also like actually get people to say, is it time to not just study the problem, but actually start acting on moving us forward? Because I think a lot of this money has already been budgeted by the federal government and they may not know about it. Yeah, so this is really interesting, Jerry. You hit on hit on a really good point. I reached out to Taylor Kirkendall, who is an energy and mining reporter for S and P Global. He's from West Virginia. He's kind of my go to guy on Appalachia, um, other than my brother. Um, and he basically said the Trump administration really gave permission to all of those mayors and public officials to not be serious about the economic transition. He said, look, they didn't even have to think about it because he kept telling people the coal jobs were going to come back. They knew they weren't going to come back. They're never going to come back. I mean, there's some Met coal jobs, um, and that's a whole nother conversation. But the coal jobs that Trump kept promising did not come back. And in fact, they're losing year by year. Something like this, and in a new administration, whether or not we have the funding already dedicated there, at least now there will be an acceptance that we actually do need to move forward and seriously consider an economic transition. And whether it's in cities, so this report very much focuses on cities, or it's much more tailored approaches like what Appalachian Voices has done with the National Economic Transition Plan that they put together. We need the combination of all of those things in those communities and their public officials moving in the same direction. And so the news here isn't that this report exists. The report was written a little while ago, but now we have eight mayors who've come out saying that they support this plan. We will probably see more local officials say the same thing. So how significant is it that we're seeing this local support coalesce? Well, I mean, look, you never know whether it's significant until you're looking at it from the rearview mirror, right? So I'm hoping it becomes significant. But I just want to make sure that we're clear about the fact that Pennsylvania is by far the most behind state in the region. New York, New Jersey, Maryland, all of the states around it are doing more in renewable energy deployment than any other state that it borders with, except for Ohio, which is even more behind. Ohio has not repealed HB6, right? And so for all of the people that have gone to jail, and now the public utility commissioner, Sam the Dazzler Randazzo, is now like getting investigated by the FBI. And, you know, they still haven't reversed HB6. And so the renewable energy... HB6 is a law that dismantled the renewable energy and energy efficiency standard. Right. And and so you're in a situation where these mayors can want as much as they want. And in fact, most of the technologies we're offering in the Rewiring America framework are fully cost effective. But like they're not like the the laws that they're operating under are not actually sending them the right signals. It's not like the the governor of Ohio has said, 
Like, this is something we are going to do. Let us make it happen. Also, even in Pennsylvania, where I had very high hopes for our governor there, but he has not really delivered. And so, like, it's one of those things where you think about it, you want it to happen. But then when you think about, like, well, how much community solar is happening in Pennsylvania? Almost nothing. How much, like, central solar is actually happening in Pennsylvania? A little bit. And so part of what I'm trying to figure out is... How do we not let these people off the hook, right? This is a great report. It's a great plan. Maybe it'll stimulate something that'll actually be long-lasting and helpful to people. But I want to see the, the governors of these states say, you know what? You're right. We have not taken full advantage of all of the programs the federal government has offered, and we are now going to do that. And here is my right-hand person that is going to be in charge of marshalling all these resources for these mayors to make sure we get this done. But we can't forget that we do have some really important success stories, Pittsburgh being a notable one. Pittsburgh lost 100,000 jobs in 20 years, starting in 1970, one third of its population. And the city was able to rebuild back and bring back tens of thousands of jobs in robotics and in the tech sector after building out in supporting clusters of companies that were spun out of Carnegie Mellon University. Interestingly, I was looking at the history of this, and this comes from a Brookings Institution's book called uh, The New Localism. And Pittsburgh, which has flourished and brought in companies like Uber and Ford and uh, Google to work on robotics, this path started after the Three Mile Island disaster, when a robotics professor came in to use a mobile robot to survey the meltdown at the nuclear plant. And it sparked a greater focus on robotics in the region, similar to how where I live, Boston, has focused on biotech and clean tech clusters. And so spinoff companies were created, startups were imagined, more government money came in. And it's a destination point for a lot of big tech companies and manufacturing companies using robotics. So a lot of people have come back to the city and it has really reinvented itself and it's often held up as the kind of place that has embraced this transition. It's not a clean energy transition, but it is certainly an important one. And it shows that with the right kind of local support, this stuff can happen. You can transition these former industrial economies. Yeah, And I think it's important to understand the transition from coal plants closing down in large part due to environmental movement pushing for regulation that would help make those uneconomic. But those communities not appreciating, certainly losing their jobs and having environmental groups cheering on the closure of these plants, even though certainly the air is cleaner as a result, and instead really being shown a vision for a future that includes them and that allows them to be diverse and allows them, it's not going to be coal job for renewable energy job. It just doesn't map that way. So as you say, Stephen, there are going to be a lot of other industries and there are going to be some communities that, as Jigger says, like may not really be able to sustain themselves as communities. You you have to have very, very local solutions in a lot of those cases. Um, But being able to see this as something where everyone benefits um, in a transition, I think is crucial. And this report would go a long way to enabling that. Totally. Let's finish the show and get those free electrons. Jigger, what's your free electron this week? So while I was stalking Catherine's uh, favorite person, uh, Fatih Barol, and, uh, you know, he announced this week. He's the executive director of the International Energy Agency. <laughs> That's right. And uh, he announced this week that renewable energy was immune to COVID. 
That was the headline of his <laughs> his press release. And that 90% of all new electricity capacity additions in the entire world in 2020 will be from clean energy. Um, the United States is roughly at 76% or so because uh, we're building a lot of natural gas plants that will never run their entire lifetime. But that is sort of beside the point. And I think that is fabulous news and uh, wanted to celebrate it here as my free electron. Yeah, but tell that to the hundreds of thousands of people who are out of work. Um, immune to COVID, yes, the march continues in terms of deployment, but there's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines as well. So We are happy to put them to work when <laughs> all of the organs of government align to let us do so. Catherine, what is your free electron? Yeah, my colleague, Matt Lehner, who's our communications guru, um, pointed me to a really interesting website that is run by NYU School of Law called Midnight Watch. And what they're doing is they're tracking all of the actions that the Trump administration is taking now right before they leave. And you can look at climate change, clean air, clean water, energy efficiency, public lands, toxics, executive actions. You can go through this and see all of those decisions that they're making at the very last minute before the administration changes. And it is something to behold. Yeah, this is like a really worrisome time. The 70 or so days between the election and the transition is when presidents make their most extreme decisions. And that is something to be said for such an extreme administration. And I'm just glad somebody's paying attention and tracking it. Well, okay. So we heard about our story from the 60s into the 90s of the automakers and the oil companies who knew about climate change and then in in the 90s decided to confuse us all. And that has reverberated through where we stand today. But we should have all been listening to Smash Mouth. So we all know the anthem... We probably hear it at sports arenas or formerly at sports arenas. It's become a major Twitter meme. Smash Mouth's anthem from 1997 called All Star. And uh, I was listening to this great show called Switched on Pop from Vox. And they are doing a profile of a lot of the 90s anthems. And they started breaking down the lyrics of this song and it turns out that the song is a lot to do with climate change. It's a cool place, and they say it gets colder. You're bundled up now, wait till you get older. But the media men beg to differ, judging by the hole in the satellite picture. The ice we skate is getting pretty thin. The water's getting warm, so you might as well swim. My world's on fire, how about yours? That's the way I like it, and I'll never get bored. Hey now, And I had no idea that this song had these lyrics, right? I've heard this song a million times. It sticks in my head. I know the hooks, but like I've never heard these lyrics before. And it, there's a lot of interviews with the band saying, yes, we were responding to like the collective worries about the hole in the ozone layer and the coming worries about climate change. And so what if, what if we had all listened to Smash Mouth <laughs> in the 90s? How the, would the world be different? Oh, we did. My son played it nonstop. <laughs> it's all Shrek's fault. We all make fun of Smash Mouth, but if we had been listening to them instead of the automakers and the oil companies, we'd be in a different place. Blame the ogre. Blame the ogre. <laughs> 
That's going to do it for the show. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my co-hosts. I am the executive producer. Thanks a lot for listening. If you want to show your support, send out the word on social media. Hit us up with an email to suggest your topics. Send a link to your friends and colleagues. Give us a rating and review. All that good stuff. It really helps us out. We can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. And uh, if you're there over the Thanksgiving table and you're having an argument about climate change or clean energy, just tell your family or whoever you're virtually sitting with or sitting directly across from to listen to this show. Hopefully we can help them out into the end of the year and into 2021. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. Talk to you soon. To our American listeners, have a great Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.